Continuing on, we're in verse 13. So he tells Timothy, retain the standard of sound words or sound teaching, which you have heard from me. See, he's speaking with apostolic authority. He laid the foundation of what the gospel to the Gentiles was, which later the Jew would be included in it, but God was still dealing with the Jews. Most likely, Paul was and Peter were put to death a year or two before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Hebrews sort of implies when he speaks of certain things, okay? So he said, these things you've heard in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. So the gospel of kindness and love and goodwill, especially toward one another. So he says, hold to, embrace the true teaching that you've heard from me. And he's the apostle to the nations, okay, to the Gentiles, okay. People, and I keep reminding us, when he speaks of teaching and sound teaching, sound teaching is teaching that leads to godliness. So much of the teaching we hear does not lead to godliness. It gives people escapes and license to sin and live as if God's grace will cover them. It's a demonic lying gospel. Once saved, always saved, while they live in their sins, and they don't seem to worry about anything. They think they have fire and show it. But godly teaching and all the teaching of the epistles, the purpose is to lead to godliness. It's to encourage people. And as Jesus said in the parable, have you heard, he told the disciples, have he gave many parables, have you heard what I've said? And they said, yeah. And he said, well, blessed are you if you do it. And then he gave the great one, building on the rock or building on the sand. So the person who hears the gospel and studies the scripture, but he doesn't do it, put it into practice, he said he's building on sand, and his spiritual fall will be great. See, he won't make it into the kingdom. That's the ones that are saying, Lord, Lord, but they just have mental assent. They're not conforming to Christ's will, the law of Christ. Uh But he said the person that builds on the rock And the storm comes and the flood and it beats against their spiritual house. That's the persecution, tribulation, affliction for being a Christian and living godly. They'll stand. When it's all over, they're still standing. When Paul talked about the armor of God, after he gives several of them, he said, having done all, stand. So he meant once the battle's over, You're to be standing. You're not to be defeated as a Christian. If you put on the armor and get God's help, you don't have to be defeated. You don't have to go down in defeat. So he was telling the apostles themselves, I've told you many of these things, but if you don't practice it and do it, it has no value. So many people just have mental assent and they believe scripture, but they don't practice it. That's the good works that Paul and James are talking about. Uh And we need to understand that. There is no faith alone. Bible don't teach that. Faith is proven by fruitfulness, obedience to the Lord. And if you don't have that, your faith is dead. As far as James says, your faith is dead. 
He said, I'll show you my faith by my works. And he meant the works of the Lord in him. He didn't mean pharisaical or self-effort. Without him, we can do nothing. But he cannot do anything with us unless we yield to him. Okay? So hold faith and love, though the scripture, out of a pure heart. That's basically sums up the Christian lifestyle. Have faith in God and love for God and others, and keep a pure heart. See, because faith and belief and all that, if you're not living a godly life, is in vain. doesn't accomplish nothing. All that believing don't mean nothing. Okay? So that's what he's saying. Loving God, obeying him, loving the body of Christ, and being a light to the Gentiles. Then the law and the gospel is fulfilled. Everything hangs on those two things, everything of spiritual value. Now go to James chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Therefore lay aside your filthy garments, is what it means, and the overflowing of wickedness, and receive the meekness with meekness or humility, the implanted word, means when the gospel's given to you, receive it which is able to save your souls. If you don't receive it, you don't live it, it won't save your soul. Uh-huh. Nothing will happen. You'll just get some knowledge. Like many ministers have knowledge and quote scripture, but they're not serving the Lord. They're false shepherds. Uh-huh. Many people are false, not because they have false doctrine, because they live falsely and don't obey the gospel. Oh, they believe it, but they don't follow the Lord, okay? So they say, Lord, Lord, and they don't do what he commands them to do. And verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So if you hear the word and you don't put it into practice, you're deceiving yourself because you have no standing with God and you'll get no leadway with him and ultimately judgment will come into play. And many deceive themselves. Remember, Paul mentioned all these sins, and he said, if you practice those, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh And he immediately says, don't deceive yourself. Understand this, you will not make it to heaven. He's saying you're not saved anymore. If you practice those lifestyles, If you're a fornicator, an adulterer, a thief, and a liar, and that's your lifestyle, you're not going to make it into the kingdom. It don't matter how much you confess Jesus. It won't work for you. So he said, be a doer. The word doer of the word, a worker of the word. See, people in false Christianity, they don't like that word work because they want everything to be grace so they're not responsible for anything. It's all Jesus. No, it's not. If grace is not yielded to, it will not work. It's in vain. False shepherds don't like to tell people that because it's not popular. So receive in humility, he's saying. The planet word, it's able to save your soul. And the planet word is not just scripture, but for the Christian, it's Christ in you, the living word. He abides in our spirit. God is everywhere. There's not a place he does not see or observe, it says his eyes go throughout the earth, beholding the good and evil. The very sparrow that dies, of the billions of birds, he's aware. 
He said the very hairs of your head are numbered. I think that's impressive. The average human head has about 100,000 hairs, and we lose about 100 of them every day. I guess God has to change the numbers every day, doesn't he? He's aware of all this. Uh There's nothing hidden from him. He sees everything. But with the sinner, he's far from them, even though his very principles and laws sustain their body. They could not live without his presence. But in relationship, they're far from him. And the Christian is close to God because he reveals himself in a different way. So he's everywhere, but he doesn't reveal himself the same. The children of Israel, they saw the acts of God, his miracles, his judgments. But Moses, it said, knew his ways. Moses was comfortable and could go before the Lord and talk. Children of Israel were not. Often they didn't want God speaking to them. It scared them. And he said, it's because you're not walking right. I want my fear to be upon you. And the children of Israel, they asked Moses, will you talk to us? We're afraid for God. And God did talk to them, the whole nation. But they did not have the relationship. They weren't in the right standing often as Moses was. So he's simply saying, if you're not right with God, you have no business standing before him. You'll incur his wrath and anger against the sinning soul, against the disobedient soul. So God reveals himself. And when a person is cast into outer darkness, the lake of fire, it's called outer darkness. It means he's as furthest away from God in relationship as can be. Yet hell itself, the lake of fire, is God's wrath. He sustains it. It's a consuming fire. And he said, I will be a consuming fire if you go after idols, because God is everywhere. How the person is determines what kind of relationship and how much God will reveal in himself. Okay? So again, he's saying, don't say, Lord, Lord, if you do not obey him. See, he's not interested in that. Uh, that's hypocrisy. Faith and love out of a pure heart, a holy, godly life is possible by Christ in us, and he helps us bear fruit, and he forgives and chastens uh, our failures at times, because in Hebrews it says he has no bastards. A bastard was an untrained and undisciplined child that's not in the household, illegitimate. So God says all of his are chastened when they fail and trained, he said, because he has no bastards, okay? So much for the person who lives the life and thinks they're saved by grace. Uh, They're very deceived, okay? So Christ in us, he must be in us, and we cannot produce the fruit and the spiritual works that he wants. No human work alone, no Christ doing it, without the consent of the branch, the yielding. It's the union of the two. You never find Christ bearing fruit without the branches. You never find the branch bearing fruit without the vine. They've joined themselves together. And he that has joined himself is one with the Lord, one in spirit, one in purpose, one in communion, relationship. Okay. And he says, now God, 14, 
God, through the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us, the treasure which you have been entrusted to, which you've been given. God, watch, hold on to. This means something can be stolen or lost or forfeited. Often we see the epistles telling us, put on, do this, don't do that. It's always appealing to the Christian's will because it's not automatic. It's not irresistible grace. The Christian must yield and he must consciously yield. And that's why Paul and Jesus preached on, take up your cross daily and follow me. Well, to take up the cross daily, that means to prepare to go to death, to give up your life. So the Christian daily, we have things that happen to us, and we have decisions to make, and many times our will and desires are in conflict with what God wants. And so when we know that, we have to consciously lay aside our opinions and wills and do what the Lord wants. And he said it's daily. It's a lifestyle. And so we will be placed in many positions that we're going to have to say, I've got to do the Lord's will. I can't do my own. I have to die to what I want because I'm a servant and a slave and I'm his and I have calling and ministry and I have to lay aside the desires of my life and I give my life up. I'm his slave and servant and not only his child. So a slave does what his master tells him, has to, or he can be beaten or sold, and in some cases put to death. And we have to learn in obedience to be a slave and not argue and not fight or resist the spirit when we consciously know we're supposed to do something or not do something. You don't haggle with God. We're not living under a democracy with the Lord. There is no voting. Oh, I've counseled many people in the past, and they want to know God's will. And then when they find it, they don't want to do it. And then the next time they come praying, oh, I want to find God's will. Uh-huh. And I often ask them, did you do the last thing God told you to do? And they look at your puzzle. Well, no, I didn't really. Like. I said, well, you ain't getting nothing else. He won't give you anything else until you do what he told you to do or you confess your sin and repent and take your punishment. But no. But people think it's a choose and pick thing. I can do as I, uh-uh, there is no voting. If you seek God's will, you better be determined to do it because you're going to be chastened and punished if you don't do it. So that's why God cannot give certain authority and ministry to various Christians because they're not faithful enough in what they've got and they're not perfecting it. And they get tired of it. And they want something bigger and better, but they're not fit for it. They're not spiritually mature yet. And they have to be dealt with. And the Lord has to deal with them. Or they rebel. <laughs> so the Holy Spirit, the gospel of good news, is God's will and plan. The Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit who helps us. He lives within us. Remember, he told him, he said, I'm with you and I shall be in you. And he said, if you love me, my father and I will come and make our abode. The Trinity, as we call it, but that's not a scriptural term. It's implied. He said, we, God, will come and dwell in you. How? 
He's the spirit of Christ, the spirit of Jehovah, the Holy Spirit. They're so one in nature. They do nothing separately. There's not three triplets there doing their own thing. All the gifts of the spirit are by the Father and through the Son and by the power of the Spirit. The Godhead is involved. But he says, we will come. So when Christ is in us, his spirit's in us. The Father is in us. The Godhead is in us. Uh And wherever we are, he's there if we walk in his purposes and his will and do what he says, okay? So he helps us, the Spirit. He's a called-along counselor, advocate. It doesn't say he's a doer. Many think, oh, it's just faith, and just trust the Lord, and he'll do it. No, he won't do it without your consent and without your yieldedness. All the supernatural gifts of the Spirit were spoken except for one. And even the prophets, the highest calling of ministry was the prophetic office, and apostles were prophets. Uh-huh. But it said the spirits of prophets are subject to them. It means they have the will to listen to what God's saying and be guided, or they can refuse. Their refusal, they maybe get rebuked and chastened by the Lord, but he does not overwhelm them and make them do anything. That's a demonic force that forces people. Demonic spirits like to control. And people that are under spirits often are not aware of what they're doing. A Christian is to always be aware of how the spirit moves because he's going to answer for what he does in the Lord. He's going to always answer for it. Good works, everything's going to be judged. And he's going to be held responsible. So the treasure Paul's talking about is the gospel of Christ that's been entrusted to him. He's learned it from the apostle, the greatest of the Gentile prophet, okay? He's learned this, okay? And the treasure of the gospel of Christ, the treasure is Christ, the living word dwelling in us. Electricity is power to do so with, but it cannot do things without a copper wire. See, it needs that wire. It doesn't just move around on its own accord. It follows a certain thing. And the copper wire is the channel. And we're the channel. We're the means, the branches that the head works through the body. And they must consent to this and yield to his moving. We are the wires. We are the earthen vessels that contain him for him to use. Okay, That's how he does it on the earth. And that's how the branch produces fruit, by yielding to the vine. Okay, Verse 15, you are aware of the fact that all that are in Asia turned away from me. He's in prison. Among them, and I'm going to try to pronounce it, Phagesius and Hermongus. Anyway, you can make it the best you can. They're not common names for us, okay? So they departed from him. There were certain Christians that came from parts of Asia, and they saw Paul in prison, and they saw he was not in favor, and it made them afraid. Because if you went and visited somebody like that, you could get yourself in trouble, 
you could be examined and thrown into prison. And they might accuse you of something. So they considered it dangerous to be associated with him. They did not have the the boldness. They claimed to be Christians, and maybe they were. But they were afraid, so they would not visit Paul out of fear. Okay? They compromised their Christianity. Uh-huh. They had previously fellowshiped with him, these two. It states that the government, the Roman government, had determined to destroy Paul. And they were made aware of this through conversation, and they were afraid to be linked with him, that they could be arrested. That's what it was. And so he names them. And so the Christian community, it was probably rather embarrassing for them. But Paul wasn't interested in sparing their feelings. He expected more of them. That's why one time he sent John Mark away because he had left them during hard trials. And when they wanted to bring him back, Paul wouldn't do it. And that's why him and Barnabas had a big split. John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. And Barnabas' name means consolation, prophecy. and con- So he was probably willing to yield more. Paul was not. Paul did not have time for a baby Christian or a novice to bear these strength. They had to be mature, and he needed co-workers. He wasn't into training then. But years later, he takes him back. He says, send John to me. He's profitable to me. Maybe he had been tested. Maybe over the years he'd seen this. John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, so he must have known something. Huh? Uh-huh. And now we go to verse 16. That's another name I'll probably pronounce. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphus. That's what it sounds like to me. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So he came to prison. People believe he came maybe from Ephesus and he ministered to Paul while Paul was in Ephesus. So he seems to have been faithful to him helping and visiting him in a prison. When he came to Rome, he searched out Paul to find out where he was. Evidently, it wasn't an easy matter and to go that he could visit and minister him in prison. But when he was in Rome, maybe Paul tells us, he eagerly searched me and found me. He wasn't worried about what the others were worried about. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He eagerly searched for me. If he came from Ephesus, and it took a while for him to find out where Paul was being kept, and he had to get permission, special permission, and they didn't make it easy. Uh Now, verse 18 tells us something interesting. It says, the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. What, the resurrection day, the day of judgment. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. By his conversation, some believe that he died. Somewhere in the months that Paul was in prison, he may have died. We're not told much about him. So he's speaking of God rewarding him at the resurrection. You usually wouldn't speak in this term about a living person. So he may have, and that may have added sorrow to Paul, someone that would not be visiting anymore. So he's asking God to remember him for the kindness 
he showed to me and reward him. Now, remember, Jesus said, the least deed that you do to another Christian, by a Christian, he said, you will be rewarded in the day of resurrection. So if the wicked are held accountable for every slight word that's sinful that they've ever committed, then the Christian shall be rewarded for all the good he does in Christ. He said, even a cup of cool water. That today would be like offering someone something to drink. That's the least thing of hospitality. And it says God will remember it. See, God remembers everything. And so a lot of Christians, as Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Those who we consider so great, and some of them are good ministers and a good but they're not going to be in the foremost. It could be people nobody knows about. They were faithful in what they were given, more so than the one that was given more. And God remembers all of that. And everything they did, God's going to remember the good and reward them for everything they did to a Christian in his name. It's God's nature. And many people say, well, I'm not looking for reward. Then you're a fool and you insult God because uh-huh. it's his nature to do it. You'll be either punished or be rewarded. There is no in-between. If he remembers all the wickedness that a sinner does, he has to remember all the good. But he says they do it because Christ is in them and they yield to the Holy Spirit. They're workers together with God and then God rewards them for it. Now, people's attitude often are wrong, and Jesus made some harsh statement. He said, a servant, a slave, when they've done everything they've commanded, they should say, I'm an unprofitable servant. You see, they're saying, in the essence, the master owes them nothing. He owns them. He expects the master, his slaves, to do what they're told. And he don't owe them any compliment or anything. If he chooses to do it, he can do it. So he's they should say, well, I'm not, I'm an unprofitable servant. I don't do as much as maybe I should. And maybe the master says, yeah, you could do better. So he's dealing with the attitude now. Don't think God owes you anything outside of Christ. He rewards us because what we do in Christ and because what Christ has done for us, that's why he does these things. We belong to him. And so as he loves the son, He also loves the disciple, the Christian. If you study that scripture, he said he'll love you because you keep my commandments, because you love me. One translation is he'll love you as he loves the Son. We don't have a comprehension that God, as he has his body still in Christ, that he loves the Christian as much as he loves Christ the Son of God, the Son of Man, because we're his brothers. We're linked with him. Uh And it says it doth not appear what we shall be. We're the sons of God. It says, but it does not appear what we will be. We'll be as high as angels. We'll have a relationship that is far beyond what a human is capable of. Okay. Chapter 2. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Uh-huh. Be strong in the grace. Grace is favor. That is true. 
people think it's only that, it's not. Favor is God choosing to be kind. He can be kind and gracious to the evil and unthankful. Favor is he decides to do anything for any person. He can do this. He can harden whom he hardened, and he can show mercy. But he never hardens himself toward a person that hasn't hardened themselves toward him and rebelled against him. He doesn't initiate this. Uh He can honor all men. Scripture tells us to honor all. But when people rebel against God and leaders, he can dishonor them. But he starts off, God loves everyone, has goodwill toward them. But as they prove themselves evil, he acts to them a different way. He doesn't have to be merciful anymore. He can bring forth judgment on them. He can refuse to favor them. So grace is favor, but it's an active force. The favor is something he gives in this grace. And what is it? Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He basically tells us what this strength or grace is. And when Paul sought to be helped and have this stake in the flesh removed and whether Satan buffeted him, extreme persecution, the Lord decided not to do it. Because of his potential for pride and arrogance, God kept it there. But he said, but something's different. He said, my grace is enough for you, my grace, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. He's saying his favor and grace is strength. He doesn't just like somebody. He does something. Love by itself is just a word. But the love of God and the love through the Christian is always giving something. It's a kindness at the minimum. It helps. It does something. And if it don't, it's not love. It's not love in action. It's passive, which means it has no effect. As we've said before, uh, you see certain programs or stuff and they solicit money or you and your gathering, someone needs money or needs help and you feel sorry for them and you show pity and that's it. You don't do nothing to help them. That pity is vain. That pity doesn't accomplish nothing. The pity must be compassion. Compassion feels for and does something to alleviate the problem. So many people have pity, and they go about their life. Nothing's done. It don't credit them. They don't get credit for anything. Okay? So God, God's word to one, and God's grace is power. As love must give by kindness and so forth, grace and favor must have strength and power to the spirit and the mind of the Christian. So when we see the introductions of the epistles, he often says grace and peace. He's asking God to favor you and give you an ability to understand the scripture and understand deeper things. That's what he's asking for. He's just not making up words, okay? So the grace of God has to be active. So if grace is given to anybody and any Christian, it's a power. And God gives the ministry gifts often. He says he gives them by his grace through faith. 
By his grace, he gives a certain measure of faith that allows that person to have assurance and authority in what they're doing. They're not playing a guessing game. Mm -hmm. But it's his grace that decides what to do and what to give. And so he gives certain levels to various people. And that's his right to do that. Even in the same gift, he gives limits and amounts to some and lesser to, he has the right to do this according to what he's called them for and what he wants from them. And Paul had great grace. He was given more grace than the 12 apostles because he had to suffer more and come under greater conflict. And he was given revelation that they weren't given. And so he said, I did greater. He said, but it was the grace of God in me that did this. So he understood uh, what was given to him and what he was responsible for. Okay. Christ said, without me, you can do nothing. Mm -hmm. Nothing of spiritual value. So for even the Christian, the babe, the novice, and mature Christians that make mistakes and stuff, many things they do is wood, hay, and stubble. They did it as a man and they try to do God's will in their own power. They have good intentions. A lot of times they don't know the difference, and they have good intentions. But good intentions produces nothing spiritual. Don't matter how good you are or you're willing to do it. You don't tell a four-year-old, or we don't have a brain surgeon, how would you like to try this? Or he may like to try it, but it ain't going to help that person because he's not qualified to do this. You don't send novices and babes to preach the gospel. They need to know the gospel and know what it means. They're not to be parrots and robots of someone else. So through Christ, without Christ, we can do nothing. Through Christ, it said we can do all things, all things that God requires. Everything that he calls us, he equips us so if he tells us to do something, we can expect him to give us the grace and the strength to do it, or he wouldn't ask us to do it. So therefore, he holds us responsible of being led of the Lord and getting the help of the Holy Spirit. Grace is vain without the Christian yielding and obeying that grace that is given. And Paul talked to the Galatians and others uh, that they missed out on grace and were going back to the law. And he said, the grace of God has been bestowed on you in vain. It means this favor and strength is not working because you don't yield to it, because you don't obey it. So we need to remember, when we talk about God's grace, you think more of strength for the Christian than you do favor. See, people often think favor, he saves us, irresistible grace, and I don't have to do nothing. It's a lying gospel. The plan is all God's. The acceptance of the plan is man's responsibility. He does not repent for the believer. He helps them in a way, but he must believe and repent. He's held responsible for this. God is not going to do it. He has his position as a human being, and the capability to yield himself to the Lord. Lord, give us wisdom and understanding that our Christianity will be practical 
and will work for us. In Jesus' name, amen.